Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and my guest today is the owner slash founder of a website that I have enjoyed reading from time to time over the last few years called RivalNations.org. Rival Nations features articles about a wide range of topics that all relate to how the complete revelation of God's character is found in Jesus Christ and how his politics and his kingdom change everything. Its founder, Peter Rollo, lives, works, and plays in Michigan with his wife, Amy. He is a pastor, digital artist, outdoor enthusiast, and theologian. Peter, thanks for joining me. Hey, nice to join you. So your website, I have to say, is one of the most beautifully designed websites, and it's not highly elaborate and luxurious. It's not like, you you know, like, it doesn't need a lot. It's so simple, and it's got beautiful imagery and beautiful art and typeface, and it navigates well. And so I love going to your site. That's not the only reason, Thank although you. your articles always say, yeah, right? <laughs> the bulk of this is that you write, and you write about kingdom ethics. You write about nonviolence. You write about all kinds of topics. And, and if people go to your website, rivalnations.org, they'll find even a list of topics and they can just look through articles. You've curated a set of images that I believe really keep the reader engaged in very important ways. And so I just want to thank you for creating this website that has helped me sort of develop my thinking about certain things. And also something I can even share with others and help them explain something if they don't quite understand a different way of thinking about things. So I would love for you to tell us a little bit about you, whatever you feel comfortable with, your backstory and how Rival Nations got started. And I actually don't even remember the year that I came across. It was probably like two years ago, but it might be much older than that for all I know. So give us a little bit of the history, how you got started, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Yeah. Thank you for the compliments. I do really try to make the website look and feel good, but that probably mostly stems from it being a side project of mine. I have a background in graphic design, and this has kind of been an outlet for creating something that looks aesthetically pleasing and also is something that's easily shareable. But yeah, just to give you background on me, I grew up in the church. I grew up with a Christian family, always attended or have been a part of a non-denominational church. So I haven't really been a part of any sort of denominational dogma. That's kind of helped me stay fluid, but it's also kind of created a situation where I just kind of latched onto anything that sounded good mm-hmm. throughout my life. And I think that's okay, but I've always been somewhat of a critical thinker. And I had a moment with some friends, this was probably about 15 years ago, where they were kind of challenging me on some of my beliefs. And they pointed out to me after a few lines of questions that some of my beliefs were contradictory. And they weren't really trying to trap me or anything. They were just really interested in talking more about what I believed. And uh, that really shocked me, but it also really challenged me to start to dig deeper. So that sort of encouraged me to start studying scripture, start studying uh, different aspects of theology. Actually, I was given a book called Across the Spectrum by Greg Boyd and Paul Eddy. And uh, it's a book that goes into pretty much all the major debatable topics 
that are within Orthodox Christianity. Mm -hmm. So topics like inerrancy, foreknowledge, Genesis, atonement, baptism, charismatic gifts, hell, all these things that Christians have disagreements about, but they have landed in areas that are still within orthodoxy. And that was mind-blowing to me because I kind of just thought all Christians believed pretty much the same thing. Mm. I didn't know there was such lively debate. So that set me on a journey that I really needed to discover what I believed. And so that's what led me to uh, really start getting a more of a formal education, studying on my own, being self-taught. I've worked in ministry for a long time. And when I say worked in ministry, I mean, I've worked at various ministries or churches. But yeah, that just started a complete change in my life where I was so passionate about theology that I just needed to start writing down what I was learning and what I believed. And Rival Nations was sort of born out of a need to share with other people, like acquaintances or friends, what I believed. Because lots of times I'd be in a conversation with somebody and we'd start talking about some theological topic. And man, I don't know about everybody else, but I can't always remember verse references and Mm -hmm. exactly everything that I... (laughs) I've studied. Oh, good. I'm not the only one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. When you told me that the website's been useful for you to share on certain topics, that's pretty much exactly why I even started making a site was for that purpose. Yeah. Yeah. How did you come up with the name Rival Nations? It's not a term or set of words that often go together, even in sort of common language. So it really has a catchiness or like a stickiness to the idea that, Mm. you know, you come across and you're like, oh, that's noticeable, right? But that doesn't actually sound like a term you would, I would have come up with at the beginning of, hey, I'm going to blog or write articles about this. So like, what's the origin of like, why did you pick that name in particular? Because there's all kinds of, you know, names you could have chosen for a website built to do what you just described to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. I originally launched the site, gosh, it was like maybe four years ago. Actually, that wasn't the title of the website. I didn't really know what I was going to title it. That wasn't really important to me. But the title eventually, I think a year later after I put the website on the internet, became Rival Nations. And that name really comes from a theme that I wanted to kind of center a lot of the articles on. When I first started writing, it was I noticed a theme that was consistent throughout a lot of the things I was writing. And the concept is what Jesus came to announce and inaugurate was the kingdom of God. And I came to discover that the kingdom of God wasn't what I really had thought it was throughout most of my life growing Mm -hmm. up in evangelical Christianity. My belief was that it was just another word for heaven, sort of this ethereal Mm -hmm. out-of-body existence after you die. But the more I studied, the more I came to understand that the kingdom of God is a nation. It's a nation just in the same way that any nation is a nation. It's just a belief that there is territory under which there is some sort of authority that governs it. And uh, if you walk around the earth, you're not necessarily going to find the borders of states or nations when you walk across them, because they're not really there. They're just on a map. So the kingdom of God is, I came to understand as an actual nation. And a theme that I also discovered throughout scripture was that the other nations are set against God and they're set against his nation, which is the kingdom of God. And so that theme kind of runs throughout most of the articles. I would say almost all of them. 
And so, I don't know, that name just came to my head. Hmm. No, that's really cool. Well, since you're a designer, it would be a mistake to not talk about the logo. And you even have an article going into depth. But your logo for your site is actually also pretty catchy. I I don't want to use the word catchy. That's not actually quite right. It's very eye-catching. I don't know if that's much better. But anyway, tell us about your logo. (laughs) Yeah, the logo was another aspect of the site that I just drive satisfaction out of putting together. It was kind of unnecessary. But it means a lot to me. And I, I try to describe it in that one article. But it attempts to make an icon out of what the name of the site is, Rival Nations, that it visually represents the intersection of God and his enemy. So there's a lot to unpack in calling something God's enemy. But that's obviously embodied by the sword, which I would say is, well, I guess the second aspect of the icon or the logo is that it's kind of a reimagining of classic crucifix imagery. So I I think that the cross is a powerful symbol, but it's a purely religious symbol at this point in our context. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really invoke a sense. The cross as icon, you mean? Yeah, the cross as an icon, like a crucifix necklace or whatever it may be. Yeah. When you see it, the imagery that's invoked is a religious symbol. And I wanted to create something that sort of reminded people of the violence and the cruelty that was done to Jesus. You know, there's lots of different symbols for executions or violence or weapons throughout history, like guns or a noose or a guillotine or something like that. Mm -hmm. But a sword is kind of like a classic weapon that's been used by rich and powerful nations to control other people and get the outcome that they want. And that's, that's essentially what was done to Jesus. So yeah, I use that imagery of a sword. And then obviously the lamb imagery is because that's how Jesus is described most often in Revelation. Mm, yeah. So let's talk a little bit of theology here. We did, I think it was one of our first episodes like four years ago, we did this debate between two people who were talking about two kingdoms theology versus a theological you know, argument against this thing called two kingdoms theology. And it it seems to be, and maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to me that you embrace a two kingdoms theology on your site. And I guess for listeners who, I hadn't actually heard of it before like four years ago. I just really hadn't. And I know that there's you know some debate within Christian circles about what that means. And to some extent, I'd love to hear your, your take on it, your defense of it, if that's where you are. But you might want to just sort of describe like what is two kingdoms theology? What does it mean to say that there are two kingdoms? Okay. There's a lot to unpack in this. I think the thing that kind of changed my mind the most on this topic was discovering that the word gospel wasn't created by the New Testament authors. The word gospel wasn't something that is purely a religious term. I mean, in our context today, I don't think anybody would ever hear the word gospel and think of anything other than Christianity. Yeah. But it comes from the Greek word evangelion, and it was used before the time of Jesus and during the time of Jesus in Roman propaganda, and usually in the context of some sort of royal proclamation, either of like a military victory or announcing the arrival of a king or emperor. And learning that is something that was kind of a game changer for me. The Caesar that was in power at the time of Jesus' birth, Augustus, he used a lot of vernacular that 
we associate with Christianity, but was in use before Jesus, like terms like son of God or Lord, Savior, Prince of Peace. Again, these are things that I would have never associated with anything other than Jesus. But these are all terms that were already in use. In fact, there's a great example, a uh, inscription that's found by archaeologists pretty much all over the Mediterranean world regarding Caesar Augustus reads, the birthday of the God was the beginning of the world of the gospel that have come to men through him. So there was already like a connotation using the word gospel, good news, talking about a kingdom, all these different things, you know, using the term of son of God, Lord, Savior, Prince of Peace. This wasn't in a vacuum. People would think of Caesar. And Jesus was very political in that he was offering an alternative to the power structures of the world that were around him. And knowing this, I think there's obvious intentionality in the time that Jesus decided to come in the flesh. You know, you were probably the first person who has mentioned the timing of Jesus coming in the flesh that I'm aware of, because I've thought about that in a number of times. It's like, not only were those phrases used, but they were used as Roman propaganda to say, this is what will bring peace. And here we have the Prince of Peace coming in the flesh. It's very interesting timing in God's sovereign view of how God wants to interact in history that during a Roman era is when the Prince of Peace arrives because you've got this very, you know, highly dominant, violence-backed crusade, if you will, of Caesar. And Jesus comes and says, no, that's not how it's done. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much the way that Caesar brought peace is through the sword. So that's definitely another reason why I included that in the imagery of the logo, for lack of better words. The term king, the term peace, all of these terms had a prepackaged meaning and Jesus subverted them all. That's even why when Pilate asked Jesus if he was king, he didn't directly answer because he didn't want to say yes, according to Pilate's understanding of what a king was. Right. So another thing that really kind of, I I think is at play here is the idea that we see in the Old Testament that God gave all the nations over to members of his divine council, which is a topic that at first for me was extremely mind-blowing, but is fleshed out extremely well by uh, Dr. Michael Heiser, especially in his book, The Unseen Realm. But it's a concept that you can actually find all over the Old Testament if you look for it. But essentially, Israel was set apart to be God's nation. And he intended to rule them directly. Israel eventually rebelled and demanded their own king. So God's nation is set apart from the other nations. And God's nation is, according to Jesus, the kingdom of God. We're we're called to be set apart from the world. And that definitely includes the other nations who, biblically speaking, their power is animated by rival spiritual forces to God. And obviously, there's a lot to unpack in all that. (laughs) which you do on your site. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, I have quite a few articles on that. Yeah. So yeah, two kingdom theology, the idea that there are nations that are, well, let's put it this way. The world or cosmos, as it is in the Greek, is talked about all over the New Testament. And it's always usually in a negative context. And I think it's important to note that that doesn't mean the earth of like planet earth. 
that means the systems or uh, the arrangement of human existence that we've created and that other spiritual beings have influenced. The world is all over the New Testament described as being ruled by Satan. And so that's something we really have to wrestle with. Like, what are the, what are the implications of that? And the New Testament authors have a lot to say about it. I think that it definitely presents an image of nations being set against God's nation. The authority of Jesus and him claiming to be king is what got him killed. It wasn't that he was offering a way to go to heaven when you die. Right. Yeah, you know, there's this sort of common idea that the only thing that we are set against as Christians are these invisible forces or these sort of forces of evil that operate within us because we're sinners, that we don't realize that we are also, I don't want to use the word enemies, although that's probably the best sort of warfare slash battle language to use. Like we are enemies with the powers that be, and they're not simply, you know, Paul writes, you know, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. And it's a little bit more than just like these invisible inherent like demons, like the Frank Peretti, you know, sort of way of thinking and, you know, that it's just cosmic battles only. And that there is a manifestation here on earth that is set against the kingdom of God. I mean, our listeners are going to be, if they've, you know, listened to our podcast or read any of our material, especially that by Norman Horn kind of earlier on in our, our website, it's very, very obvious that the state is at odds with the kingdom of God. And one way I really like how you have sort of described things, you use this phrase, Jesus nation. And again, it's very similar to rival nations in that it captures what you're saying accurately without being too cheeky or clever or whatever. The word kingdom of God, I mean, it gets thrown around so much. It's similar to how, you know, we see imagery of a cross and it's like, oh yeah, 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 it's Christian imagery, right? Like kingdom of God, oh yeah, that means heaven. Or that might mean, you know, it means heaven, but includes now, depending on where you are theologically. We can live as if we're in heaven and all of this, but like kingdom is not a phrase we still use. I mean, maybe there's a few nations around the world that kind of talk about the kingdom or something, their kingdoms or, you know, whatever. But, you know, that's pretty archaic language. But like Jesus nation, it actually, first of all, has a little bit of a ring to it. Second of all, it helps you conceptualize who you are as a citizen, which again, people can go to your website to read what you have to say about that and things like the Pledge of Allegiance and such. But I think that's what's really key about being Christian is that you are part of a new nation. And I would say you would agree because you're the one that's kind of put me onto this way of reframing it in that language. Mm. Yeah. First of all, I don't want to take full credit or any credit for the term Jesus Nation. I actually, that's a series title from the Meeting House Church in Canada, led by Bruxy KV. So I did get that from that. I do find it to be one of the best ways to describe or give another name for the kingdom of God. Because Uh I think what you said is true. Kingdom is an archaic word. It definitely has connotations of castles and medieval times and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I don't think it most effectively communicates what Jesus was actually doing here and the implications of his nation being here on earth finally is it's something that requires and I think demands something that is a little bit more 
contemporary to understand what it is and to properly respect what Jesus was doing. I think that also creates a little more tension, though, in that when we realize the repercussions of declaring that there is a different sovereignty that rules the earth, I think that's a little bit more dangerous. It's technically treasonous. And I think that's an aspect to Christianity that we've completely lost in America. Because Well, yeah. Why do you think that is? There's probably a variety of factors, but I interrupted you before you said because. So tell me the because. <laughs> <laughs> if you take the teachings of Jesus seriously, they're going to lead you to a place ultimately where you will become an enemy of whatever nation that you live in. And I think that's especially true if you are like us living in America, which is a rich and powerful nation, superpower, or as I like to say, empire, Mm -hmm. to just call it what it is. But the teachings of Jesus, ultimately, at at the end, if you're as loyal as you can be to Jesus, it requires you to love your enemies. And that is definitely an aspect to American evangelical Christianity that is glossed over most of the time, whenever possible. But where that leads is according to U.S. law, it would potentially result in treason. And that includes, you know, love is a fluffy word, but love in action means you're blessing your enemies, you're feeding them, you're housing them, you're giving them what they need. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You can't technically do that. We can love our grouchy neighbor, sure. Nobody's going to care about that. But if you consider your national enemy, whoever that may be, whatever decade you live in, whether it's Osama bin Laden or China or North Korea or whatever Uh uh we're supposed to be fearful of at the time. If you're loving them in action, that's treason in America. So I guess that's what I'm getting at. It's not something that packs the same punch as it did for the early church in the first three or 400 years of Christianity, who was facing very real persecution because they were saying that somebody else was in charge, that Jesus was king. And that meant that Caesar really didn't have the authority that he claimed he had. Yeah, I think it's this contrast. You just nailed it there. The idea that you don't have authority over me, I have a higher authority, and that authority is even over you. You know, we say this to the state or empire, to use your terminology, and I use that too. So we have Christians who are saying, I don't need to obey the government because I need to obey God. And sometimes it's almost not even like, like, sure, we can volunteer our time and do things that love others in this way. But like, those are just the legal ways that help us love others. Like, what do you do when loving others requires you to defy the law? Because like the law might not be saying, oh, go and kill somebody. But if the law is saying something that is prohibitive of you. I mean, there's actual examples of people who are serving the poor, but, you know, the local law enforcement or, or, you know, whatever, for some reason, they don't like it. And for some reason, they decide that, you know, the people serving the poor have to be arrested because, you know, the, the government is the only one who can do it. It's almost like there's this jealousy by those in power with the state who say, no, people can't do this voluntarily. People can't use what you and I would call the power of the gospel, the good news, to compel others in a, an attractive way to serve others. And 
you know, I think the founding of America, and I'm just going to comment here about what you said there, like it's really difficult, kind of long gone from us in America to think of the government as opposed to the Jesus nation. And that's because our founding was unique and it was very, it was pluralistic and open and it creates a comfort for us to be. But even in the end, it's, if you're a perfect Christian, which, you know, we can't be, but if you were a perfect Christian, you wouldn't survive legally. Yeah, I think we see a lot of examples in the New Testament, especially with Paul, where he seems to say that we should be submissive to a degree to the government, but he constantly found himself in trouble with the government. He was arrested and jailed multiple times. He did things that were illegal. He escaped custody. He would uh, try to elude arrest. He... (laughs) He wasn't fully concerned with obeying the government, but it does beg the question to what degree should we be obeying the government? And I think it's only when it doesn't defy the law of Christ, when it doesn't conflict with following Jesus. Because if we're really going to believe that Jesus is our ultimate authority, then rulers of the world are just merely there. And We want to remain peaceable and live simple lives. But the moment that any earthly human authority is telling us to do something that is contrary to the way of Jesus, we have to disobey. There is no other option unless we want to forsake the way of Jesus. And Jesus makes it very clear in the Sermon on the Mount that that would be foolish. I mean, Mm. he strongly words that in a way that is you know, kind of unnerving, at least for me, whenever I'm faced with a situation where I have to decide what I'm going to be, you know, who I'm going to be following, essentially. Mm, Yeah. Hi, this is Dr. Norman Horn. And if you like the Libertarian Christian podcast, then you'll definitely like our other podcast, Good News, Bad News, a roundtable where you can join me, Matt, Carrie, Doug, Aaron, and others as we analyze the news from a Libertarian Christian perspective. Check us out on YouTube, your favorite podcast app, or on libertarianchristians.com slash roundtable. So let's talk about Romans 13. I mean, that's every libertarian's favorite passage to, you know, argue over because yeah. it does seem to, you know, on the surface, there's terminology that we're a little bit unfamiliar with because we don't speak Greek. Well, I mean, most of us don't speak Greek. I don't speak Greek. I don't read Greek. I can pronounce it if I'm given a Greek New Testament. I can pronounce the words. That's about as far as I got. And, you know, maybe I can't even do that at this stage. But (laughs) interpreting words in Romans 13 can be kind of key to understanding it. But at face value, in almost any translation you read it, it's like, oh, oh, I got to obey the government. And it's actually clear that you don't have to obey the government. So I will highly suggest your article in Romans 13 just a little side comment here for our listeners. You have a note at the top on roughly how long it should take you to read an article, which is really, really great because you can sort of say, oh, okay, I'm going to be able to digest this in 10 minutes or, you know what, this one's going to take a little longer or whatever. And, you know, readers can sort of decide for themselves what to do there. But this one's a little bit longer, I think, of the ones that you have. And it really covers a lot of ground. And I'd love for you to sort of just like pique our interest, give your take on Romans 13. Why doesn't it say that we have to obey the government. Yeah. (laughs) Romans 13 is admittedly extremely tricky for anyone, including a libertarian or otherwise. Unless 
you're a statist who believes firmly in the authority of whatever government that you prefer, Romans 13 is, is difficult. I think reading Romans 13 is difficult because we come to the text with a lot of presuppositions, both in what our biases are, but then also how it's been read to us or interpreted for us. So I think a plain reading would definitely lend itself to walking away with saying, okay, the government is the boss and we got to do what it says. And I think that is true a lot of the time. But it's only, like I said before, it's only because when it aligns with the way of Jesus. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, so I'll, I'll try to be brief. But to dispel the common belief about Romans 13 is that we need to obey the government. I think the most clearest reason why that's not the case in terms of a technicality is that Paul's not using the word obey in the Greek. There is a word for obey, but that's not the word he uses. It gets translated to to be subject in, in a lot of English translations. But that Greek word is hupotasso, and it really means just being submissive. Paul likewise uses that word when he says that wives need to be submissive to their husbands. It doesn't carry the connotation of obeying. That, that's another Greek word. I don't know if I can pronounce it correctly, but uh, hupakuo, I think, hupakuo. And that, that's a separate word. So Paul could have used that word. He doesn't. I, may, I make that point in the article. Mm-hmm. But I think that matters. Obviously, the rest of the text also has to be wrestled with. My personal opinion is that a lot of the things that most people would come to the conclusion of is not necessarily true. And I think that's obfuscated through translation as well. For instance, the word uh, that God has established the authorities or instituted the authorities is the Greek word tasso. And it, it doesn't necessarily mean that. It means that it's been arranged or put in place. Mm-hmm. I quote in my article, theologian John Yoder, he likens God's work here of like the word tasso to like a librarian. His quote is, the librarian doesn't make the books, does not write them, does not necessarily approve of them, but simply puts them in order. And I think that definitely is the most consistent interpretation for what we see in all of the rest of scripture. Hmm. Even Paul's other writings in terms of how God is interacting with other nations. He doesn't establish or institute them in in the regard that he makes them exactly how he wants them to be. That may be something that some Christians believe, and that's okay, I guess. But I think the implications are pretty scary, if that's the case. Yeah. One of the things that people, when people bring up Romans 13 in the context of Christians behaving in society, I often wonder, okay, And I try to challenge this in a way that's sort of reflective and thought-provoking rather than like, you know, try to be the the one-up, you know, slam dunk or mic drop or whatever, is how would you advise a pastor living in the late 1930s to preach on the passage of Romans 13 in Germany? Mm. And that's good. It's tough because if we believe that the scripture is authoritative and if we believe that the scripture applies, you know, to the church in that context, how does Romans 13 apply? And I'm not asking you to answer that question, by the way, but like, it's a challenge to say, well, just obey the government or just assume that the government is by default the source of authority over us. 
and there is room to say, no, you are operating outside the boundaries of the kingdom of God. You're, you're operating outside the boundaries of, for that matter, just simple justice when you're trying to round up, you know, six million people, six, seven million people. So there are limits to the ability for Romans 13 to say, you know, universally, this is the situation. And so what if you, I mean, I, I'm just thinking through this out loud at the moment, but like, what if you are, you know, a Christian living in Germany during that time and you're like, oh, well, you know what? I'm actually going to leave because I want to choose a different ruler. Uh, I'm going to move to Austria or I'm going to move to England or wherever it is nearby so that I don't have to listen to the Third Reich and they won't let you. Well, now what? <laughs> it's like, you get put in tricky situations. So if you can't preach Romans 13 during that time, then you might need to rethink your yeah, rethink your interpretation. That's how I tend to take it or tend to go with it. And, you know, it's places like your article and Jason Huey wrote the chapter in Call to Freedom. It deals with Romans 13 and he deals with it in a number of ways. It's just really important that we don't gloss over that and just be like, oh yeah, yeah that's, that's what it says. I'm just going to be the government or follow or submit to. Yeah, I think a couple other things that are really important to note is that Paul obviously is not describing the situation that he is currently living in. When he writes in verse 3 that rulers hold no terror for those who do right, that is not the case in his context. He's talking to a church that is being persecuted more than they've ever been before by Emperor Nero, who is just a complete insane monster that would light Christians on fire and feed them to lions in the Colosseums. He is not describing how things are actually playing out. So for us to read Romans 13 and say, well, governments always do what's right, or they only punish wrongdoers and never people who do right. That's not what was even going on during Paul's time. It's definitely not going on during our time. It would not be faithful to the text for us to interpret it that way. We have to instead maybe be a little bit more creative. And I think there's different interpretations that are a little bit more faithful. But I think the easiest one is just to recognize that maybe Paul is talking about how governments function when they do function as a servant for God. Obviously, not as his first ideal for how he would like the world to function, but as when it is functioning in its proper arrangement. Right. Yeah. You know, it's easy for us to say, well, governments don't always do this, right? Like, it's one thing. I'd say, well, but Paul says. And it's really important that you pointed out, even during Paul's time, Paul was aware that that's not what governments do. Because clearly, it's not the only way the governments operate. Yeah. Yeah. So before we wrap up, I want to sort of peek the interest of our listeners, if they haven't been peaked already, by some of your article titles. And there are more than the handful here that I've the three that I've chosen just sort of like let you just basically tease it a little bit. You don't have to speak too deeply on it. But one of them is voting is violence. That's probably a familiar like topic. But like, what is that article about? That article was written around the time of the last election, which was a very tumultuous time in America. <laughs> and I think a lot of Christians were looking for uh, answers. They were looking for a new Caesar, man. Yeah, they were looking to decide who Caesar would be, which a lot of Christians would believe is a, is a very important God-given right that we've been given. That's a blessing. I do not take that stance. And that article is, I think, 
pretty much the longest one I have on the website, but it unpacks a lot. And it's probably the one that goes most in depth into the idea of when Israel decided that they were done with their judges, their sort of quasi authoritative leaders of their tribes. And they decided that they wanted a king so that they could be like all the other nations. God responds to this with grief and sadness. And he has a detailed warning about what that would all entail and all the, all the evil that would come from that, since Israel was supposed to be an example to all the other nations. But they did get what they wanted. They got a king, they got a few of them, and then their nation pretty much fell apart because of it. But I go into how that applies to us. When we're asking God for a ruler other than him, that's a, kind of essentially what voting is. We're selecting who we want to rule over us. Obviously, there's a lot of nuance in there, and it's the longest article on the website because yeah. there is a lot to unpack there. So the next one then is, and I was thinking about this. This caught my attention more recently because you know our church does baptisms on a regular basis, and you know there was one that was recently done, and I saw your article. Baptism is anti-American. <laughs> now that's that's provocative, but well, well, the third one's even more provocative. But I'll let you. What on earth? What do you mean? Baptism? Yeah. Isn't it just a public proclamation that I'm followed Jesus? <laughs> yeah. I'll quickly note that one thing I learned early on once I decided to put this website out there is that the title for your articles matters. That said, that isn't a clickbait article title necessarily because I do unpack that. And it comes from the idea that's kind of seen all throughout the Old Testament of Israel's identity coming from the fact that they left the empire of Egypt, formerly their slaves, and became part of God's nation. And that Exodus story sort of being retold through different literary design patterns throughout the Old Testament, but then we also see so much of the way that the New Testament authors describe Jesus in ways where it would invoke thoughts or imagery of Moses. So Jesus compared so much to Moses in that he's leading his people through a new exodus and into his nation. And so the act of baptism, the ritual or the rite of baptism has a lot of political connotations that are kind of lost to us today, but it's all around citizenship. It's kind of like a, a citizenship ceremony. And when we become citizens of God's kingdom, we in a lot of ways, are not really dual citizens anymore. So, yeah, there's there's a lot to uh, to talk about, but yeah, no, it's great. Well, one one more here, since we'll go with the uh, the anti-American sentiment, and you tread. <laughs> this article would never have been written 15 years ago, I don't think. <laughs> no, but <laughs> how to live in the great Satan? That's such an awkward title for most people to think about. That terminology, the great Satan, you know, in 2001 through 2006 or beyond, you know, not much further beyond, basically the Bush era, I should say. Yeah. People actually probably would know what that means, but I came across it and I was like, wait, what? And, you know, <laughs> you, you spell it out in the first paragraph about what exactly that means, but what is how to live in the great Satan? So that's an article. Obviously, the title is very provocative, but at some point I had so many articles on the website that I felt like an article that could sort of tie a lot of them together and kind of be a common thread to lead people to read more about a bunch of other topics 
would be a great asset for the site. So if you look at the article, it, it's very topical in that it will hit these topics. Talk about it briefly within around three paragraphs, and then there's a link to read more. But mm-hmm. essentially what it is, is it's what I put together to be a guide to reframe how you view your citizenship in America or any nation you live in and how you relate to it, how you interact with it and how that affects your identity. So it's kind of a grab bag of different topics. Yeah. Well, that leads me to like basically my final question here is, what do you think of the phrase that people usually say, I love my country? Is there a way that a Christian can genuinely and without rejecting their citizenship of their Christian, their Jesus nation citizenship, genuinely say that in a way that works out consistently? I think so. But it's very difficult to, because when you say you love America, or if you wave an American flag, you know, you're not, you're not in a coffee shop talking with them and, and drilling down into all the details about what that means. So there's a lot of presuppositions that come with that. Mm-hmm. And I think that whether you're a Christian or not, or whether you're politically liberal or conservative, I don't think anybody really thinks you're talking about the U.S. government when you say that you love America. At least not at this stage. Yeah, that might be the case, but I I don't really think people necessarily go there. They're they're going in and they're assuming that you love ideas, that you love the American mythos, maybe the idea of what America was allegedly built on, or you love the idea of freedom, or cowboys and Indians, or whatever it may be. That's what people assume that you love about America, and I think in some ways that's okay, but. If that's what people walk away from you understanding that that's what you care about, then I think that you failed as a Christian, mm. Yeah, ultimately. Because America is perhaps, in terms of if you're middle class or high class living in America, you live an extravagant life. And it's, it's hard to argue that your existence is not a blessed one in the traditional non-religious sense. But in the sense of the way that Jesus describes being blessed in the Beatitudes on his, with his Sermon on the Mount, it's nothing, nothing, nothing like the American idea of being blessed. Mm-hmm. Jesus taught that it's blessed to be meek, that it's blessed to be poor or merciful or to be a peacemaker. And when anybody thinks about America, they don't think of meekness. They don't think of being poor, maybe merciful, maybe peacemaker, but it's probably not what Jesus had in mind. Mm. So I think that's the danger. When we identify as an American, when we say that we love America, we're really giving too much room for that to be interpreted incorrectly. Mm. And I think that's probably why I do a lot of the writing that I do is because I want people to kind of rethink their affection for the comfort and the ideas that they like about America. Yeah. Well, I can't think of a better way to wrap that up than for what you just said. Peter, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Your website, rivalnations.org, comes recommended by me. I will caveat this by saying that obviously nobody is going to agree with everything you write. And it's not like, I can't even say that I would agree with everything you write as well. So you're going to 
you know, listeners are going to find a, an assortment of things where they're going to be like, huh, I don't think I agree with that. Or, oh, I don't agree with that. Or, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Uh, I wish I, you know, had this five years ago or whatever. So there's going to be a, you know, a number of reactions, but I really appreciate what you've created and for coming on and sharing some ideas directly with us and sort of piquing the interest of our, of our audience. So thanks again for coming on. Yeah. And I just want to say everything that I write is not a new concept. And I tried to include verse references and footnotes and links to books because everything that you read on there is something that you should really be researching more yourself. Don't take anything at face value. Yeah, well, I totally agree. So thanks again, man. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.